0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Ashley Davis, author of the book Bootstrapping Microservices from Manning Publications, and also the upcoming book Rapid Full Stack Development. We started out talking about our differing perspectives on the relative benefits and drawbacks of microservices, monoliths, and everything in between. But the more we talk, the more common ground we actually end up finding. And now, the monolith microservices spectrum. All right, Ashley, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we mentioned this like when we were just chatting beforehand, but I have yet to hear a really compelling pitch for microservices, but I I'm, I'm totally open to hearing one. So, you know, you're the author of the book Bootstrapping Microservices and you have personal experience with it. So, I'd love to hear just sort of like from your perspective, what's the pitch for microservices?
1: It might be a surprise to you, but I'm not really going to try and convince you to use microservices. <laughs> okay, okay. I've got I've got heaps more to say about this anyway. Well, let's talk about it, yeah. I think really it's not You know, it's not like you should be using microservices regardless of of where you went and what your project is. I just don't think it's like the book that I've written, Bootstrapping Microservices, it doesn't sort of presuppose that you have to use microservices for every project. Wait a minute. This sounds like you're not an absolutist about something. Hang on. Hang on. This is is
0: blowing my mind.
1: Yeah. Okay. cool. Cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I suspected, you know, that might be the case. I mean, so I I think on the podcast before you've mentioned like, you know, team monolith versus team microservices. Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm, I guess I'm firmly in the middle. Like when I, I was probably more pro microservices when I, when the first edition of bootstrapping microservices came out, but by now I'm working on the second edition for it. And, you know, my, my thinking about it has evolved a bit. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Wait, so now I need to get you on Team Monolith. That's really what this <laughs> conversation has to I'm, I'm doing the pitching. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, no, I, I kind of am. But, you know, before we talk about that, like there's something else I wanted to ask you anyway, right? Yeah, sure. And a lot of people are very fearful about microservices. And in a way, I can sort of see that. In a way, I can't, though, because like like, I don't fear it. I've, I've used them a lot. I use them for a lot of small projects. I, I, I mainly work for startups and small companies. And I'm like, nice. I'm not, I'm not afraid to start with microservices, you know, if case seems to need it. Uh-huh. But what I want to ask you is because I mean you've spoken to more people than, than I have about this and probably have a have a better understanding. Where where does the fear even come from? Where does the fear come from? That's a great question. Okay, so I guess there's two parts to this. So one
0: is there's parts of what I perceive to be the pitch, or at least the pitches that I've heard, that I think are not they don't sound as enticing as they might be if you kind of dig in a little bit deeper. So for example, one of the things that I've heard that is that, oh, well, if you have So, okay, one of the big pitches for microservices is sort of the Conway's Law pitch, right? It's like Mm -hmm. your system is going to, whether you like it or not, it's going to end up organized the same way as your organization is organized. And so if you're going to have a bunch of small teams in your organization, which is generally considered to be a good thing, and I would agree with that, like teams of like three to five people, I think is kind of the, the, the best size that I've seen. And once you get above five people on a single team, things start to get a little bit unwieldy. Not saying it can't be done, but if you're going to have teams that size anyway, the argument goes that because of Conway's law, you're going to end up with a system that's organized around chunks of code that are about what those three to five people you know, can work on anyway. So why don't you embrace that with services? And one of the follow-up pitches as because as, like you could say, and, I, and this is the kind of the thing that I would say is, okay, well, let's just say that these chunks of the code base are sort of coupled to that team and that team is sort of responsible for those chunks of the code bases or at least primarily responsible for them. But you can enforce those boundaries using things like modules or even packages, depending on what your programming language is. And I would say that you don't need to go as far as to put a service level boundary around it, to actually put like, you know, a, a web server and get the network involved. So to me once you sort of drill down a little bit it's it's not that I'm disagreeing with the Conway's law you know observation but rather that I'm saying okay but why is the pitch that you need to get the network involved to do this and in some mm. languages I totally get it like if you have a language where you don't have really good module boundaries and and enforcing that type of thing where you can actually you know, make sure that like the stuff that this team is doing is not accidentally bleeding mm-hmm. over into what other teams are doing and affecting them and causing chaos. I get that. Then there's a, a more compelling argument for a network boundary. But otherwise I see that as not so much a pitch but an anti-pitch because it's like, well this is just gonna the network boundaries and and you know having to deploy this stuff is, is going to make things harder. So that's one part of it. And then uh, so that's something, you know, to, to frame it in terms of like you ask like what are you afraid of? My fear would be that we're taking on a lot of complexity that we don't need because we can solve this problem just using much more lightweight software stuff like modules to address the Conway's law issue. So that's one part of it is like stuff that we don't need. And the other part of it is that again, another part of the pitch that I've heard is that, well, if teams are truly decoupled and they can just own their own service, which can mean not just like, you know, like a web application, not just the business logic, but also like the data storage, then they can use whatever technologies they want. They just need to set up an API to talk to everybody else. So they can use their own, whatever database they want. They can use whatever programming language they want, whatever frameworks they want. It can be totally different from everybody else's. And again, that sounds like, you know, when you say it that way, it sounds like, at, at, at first glance until you dig deeper maybe that's a good thing but i think about what's going to happen after you do that like two or three years later and what i would be very much afraid of is that one team decides to use this technology and this persistence layer and this other team decides to use this technology and this persistence layer and now like we have the unfortunate happens and like half of this team decides to leave and get another job at once and now we have this very understaffed team and we can't quickly move people from another team everybody who wants to move onto that team whether it's by new hires or moving people from other teams has a huge ramp up because they have no idea how any of these technologies work in addition to getting ramped up on the code base and on the one hand i'm a big proponent of like anyone can like you know ramp up on new technologies you should not make hires based on requiring x years of experience in exactly what you're using right now however i do think that like if it's short notice not possibly being able to backfill from like your own other teams is a scary thing to me. Like that's that's usually a a like you know lever I'm used to being able to have access to is just like I can move somebody from another team and all they have to ramp up on is the code base and not the technology stack. So those are a couple of things that I, I'd be afraid of.
1: Yeah I think you know what you're coming up with there is like you know traditional big company pitches for microservices, like what are the big companies going to get out of it? And I think individuals, possibly, you know, like solo developers or, or people working on startups, that kind of thing, you know, are very scared of those arguments because, you know, they are like, you know, something you need a lot of resources to, to, to manage and to keep rolling forward. I don't know that that's the case as much anymore, like with, with modern tools and systems and good automation, like I don't think it needs to be as scary as it once was. Also, you know the fear I think uh, a lot of the fear yeah it comes from the complexity, right? but uh, but I think that's also sort of coming from it from the wrong angle because what microservices are supposed to be for is managing complexity. Like they're another tool in our toolkit for managing complexity. and I just tell developers like don't fear complexity. like if you fear complexity, then you're, you're a goner because you know, <laughs> if you're working on a monolith, you've got to believe it's going to get complicated pretty quickly. pretty complex, sure. right? So are microservices, and just like a monolith, microservices can start out very simple and very easy to understand and very easy to work with. And sure, you know both will go grow complex over time. But microservices themselves give you the tools to manage those complexities. So it's by breaking up big complex system into these small parts that are that are easy to manage, easy to understand as well, because they're meant to be small services, right? So you would hope that you know one developer, you know, given a few days, could get an idea of what's going on there and and be able to start working on on that thing now of course a lot of this relies on good setup good automation i think probably a lot of microservices disasters like are prob- <laughs> probably about you know bad automation you know things yeah. going wrong in production um services being too small as well i think there is such a thing as a microservice that is like way too small
0: it's too and, micro <laughs> and, and because of
1: that it's got you know too too chatty too many network transactions going on there to kind of to talk to, talk to other things to do the job so and the size of a microservice i think in fact, I just I kinda wanna abolish the term microservice because I think really? you, you should be just looking to make services that are of an appropriate size for the project that you're working on. And that that'll vary from like person to person, team to team. And I think, you know, like like using a monolith or using microservices, there's no guarantee of success either way, right? Totally. Your success really comes from, you know, how you use the tools that you're using. And like this is gonna sound a bit wishy washy, I suppose, but like I think it comes a lot from the personalities of the people involved and, and the culture as well. So, like, you're going to be successful with functional languages because your personality, there's something about you, and you've put a lot of investment into that that means that you're always going to be successful there. Poss- possibly not that's for nice me. To
0: say. I, don't, I don't know about that, but
1: <laughs> uh, what I'm trying to say is, you know, I think if you choose tools and technologies that fit your personality and fit the way you want to work, you're going to find a way to make it successful, you know, whether that's yeah. or, or microservices. Now my book uh, bootstrapping microservices it presupposes like that you want to use microservices it's not like you know a book that's going to try and convince you that microservices are the best way to do everything and it's not I'm, I'm not trying to force microservices on on anyone of course i just want sure. to teach teach people the tools and i think learning the tools can put you in a better position to kind of help you understand you know where you want to be on the debate in terms of monolith and microservices
0: yeah now okay so i like what you said about like And something I said in various contexts is like, I'm I'm pro services, but not the micro part. And and to me, the micro part means and and maybe this is not something you would agree with. But like, to me, the micro part means making them intentionally small, as opposed to just being letting them be whatever size feels appropriate based Mm -hmm. on your use cases. And honestly, for my mind, the biggest use case part of that often comes down to just like hardware requirements, like you're like, this group of machines needs to be really high on ram and we don't necessarily care about i don't know disk speed or cpu or something like that just because they're doing a bunch of stuff that requires putting a bunch of stuff in memory in contrast these things over here these machines we really really care about cpu speed and lots and lots of cores and lots and lots of you know the highest clock speed we can get because they're doing really really cpu intensive stuff and we don't want our entire fleet of machines to have to be maximum everything cuz that's really expensive. So we want to split things up into services according to that. That's like one example, there can be other reasons of course that you want another like being availability, right? You're like this thing if it goes down, we know that it might go down for various reasons and we really don't want it to take the rest of the system down with it or this other thing is super critical and we want it to have as much uptime as possible and we don't want to work that hard to have the whole system have that much uptime. Also a good reason.
1: Lots of benefits to using microservices. I mean that that's well documented. But- what it really is like to, to take the sting out of it for people who might, who hate microservices. It's like, <laughs> like I should say that there are a lot of benefits to building distributed applications. And in my experience, even just working on small applications, you know, things like you want to spin out a machine learning model to a separate service. That's not something that you want to have like impacting your, you know, customer facing API, that kind of thing. There are security, good security reasons. So I've been contracting in the blockchain space and we have services that extracted from the whole security reasons so that we can we can kind of lock down the accounts around that and have very limited access to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, no argument here. Like I think if, if you know, when it comes to, and, and again, this is what I would just call services is like, if you're like, This chunk of code needs has very different security system needs than the rest of the system. And we want to sort of, you know, not literally air gap it, but like, you know, like we want to, we want some really, like, we want a network boundary there to enforce guarantees, totally get it. Same thing. Yeah. Like machine learning, great example. You know, you're like, you have different hardware needs. You want a bunch of GPUs here and like your web application servers do not need any GPUs. (laughs) So yeah, there's definitely different needs there too. I want to go back to something you said, because I think. I'll put on my my anti monolith hat for a second. And, and I think one of the things that scares people about monoliths, and I'm projecting a little bit here, because this is not a fear that I personally have, but I understand it is that if all of your code is all in one big code base, it's going to be really easy to be loosey goosey with your boundaries. And to say, like, yeah, theoretically, we could organize this code into small logical groups that are, you know, modular, and don't color outside the lines and all that. But in practice, because it's so easy, we will do that. And our team will just end up with a, a big interconnected mess. And it's going to be really hard to separate things out in the future because it's so easy to, to couple things that don't need to be coupled. I think that's a pretty good argument. Like It's it's a pretty reasonable like fear to have. And I certainly have seen that happen at places
1: that I've worked. I think common logic would say that you go to big I've only worked for a couple of big companies and I haven't seen them go through the scaling process, but, you know, I go to these talks at conferences and listen to people who, you know, come from the big companies and the, the kind of thing they say is don't start with microservices because you're, by the time you need to scale, you're going to need to throw it all away anyway and start again. And, and that's ah. typically the chronology of these big companies is they sure. you know, they've thrown away their tech and started multiple times. So I, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, you know, I think that's a safe way for people to start. Uh, you know, starting in a place where it's uh, comfortable and, and simple. But I also just want to say that, you know, you, you can start to use or well, start to build distributed applications and start to get the benefits of being able to kind of push stuff out into microservices and create like pathways to scalability in the future. Like even if you're not using that now, I think, you know, for me, that means like sort of, you know, being comfortable using Docker using Kubernetes for, for my deployments, um, having all my deployments like uh, automated and sort of seamless. And even if I'm just using a monolith, I mean, that might be overkill for a monolith, and typically I wouldn't, I wouldn't be having just a monolith, but you've got a system, you've got the hard part really done. I, like I think in a lot of cases the hard part is the deployments and, and the infrastructure. And once you've got recipes and templates for that, like it's not, it's not as hard anymore.
0: But I think a reasonable counter argument to that is saying that you're over engineering, like you're, you're saying, like, you know, even though we don't need this in order to scale yet, you know, we're going to set up all this automation and all these things for a f- hypothetical future in which we have lots of services, even though we don't currently have lots of services. And I I mean, there's like some famous counterexamples of that, like, like Hacker News for a very long time has just been like one server and like maybe a backup server. And I don't even know if they have a backup server. Uh, And it serves, you know, a huge amount of traffic. I know that Stack Overflow for a long time was a very like monolithic. So it's definitely, it seems like just because it's it's the most common way that companies scale is they'll add more and more services and stuff like that, uh, that we kind of take it for granted that that's like... Going to be required at some point for scaling, but it, it is worth noting that it's not the only way to do it. There's other companies that do it other ways, and so and certainly plenty of companies achieve scale without using Kubernetes or, or things like that. Even though I mean maybe, maybe they'd be better off if they did, I don't know. But but it's certainly possible in my mind that like someone could say, let's make this big investment in making it really easy and really fast to deploy and set up all this automation. And then look back and be like, yeah, we could have done that like three years later and it would have been fine. (laughs) We we could have spent our time on other things up front.
1: Yeah, that's true. But I mean, like I've done this many times now and I've got the recipes I use, you know, a lot of which I've talked about in my book. And I like I can roll out a new project fairly quickly, and I don't have to think about things like that. Like I've I've got you know templates for projects for microservices, so all that's you know fairly well covered. I think for me, I mean I understand that you know if people aren't if people are new to that to, to working that way, that it's going to seem very difficult. And um, well, I mean that's why I wrote my book really, is because sure. <laughs> you know like when when I was learning this stuff, like I mean there were plenty of kind of those sort of theoretical microservices books around, but. Like even as as a very experienced developer myself, like I read those books and I still didn't really have any idea how to start right. (laughs) And so I I went through the process of of learning Docker and learning Kubernetes and learning how to do deployments and finding you know ways and means to kind of to build applications like this. And that's that's why I wrote the book is to to help other people kind of you know cross that learning curve without having to go through as as much pain as uh, as I felt like I did. It is complicated to learn. I think I think that's one of the one of the big barriers to adoption. You know, with this kind of development.
0: Now, one thing I will say that I don't know if, I wouldn't say that microservices are the only way to address this, but it does seem to be sort of an unsung perk that I don't hear talked about that much, which is one way that I've heard this phrase, and this isn't quite what I'm about to talk about, but it's it's kind of in the same ballpark is people talk about like, oh, you know, you don't want to go to microservices because deployments are really hard and you're going to be deploying a bunch of stuff. And the phrase that I've heard is if it hurts, do it more. And the idea being that like, well, you're not you know it's hard and painful to do deploys because you're not good at it. You don't have automation. But if yeah,
1: I have a way. I have a way to say this. Okay, sure. I call it bringing the pain forward to where it's easier to deal with. Bringing the pain forward. Interesting. So for like relative to where? Well, as opposed to putting it off in the future, where it's actually going to be much I more see. painful because okay. you've, you've, you've written so much more code, you've got so much more product that needs to be, you know, potentially converted over. Gotcha.
0: Okay, so it's like the flip side of like the, it's the, the counterpoint to the over-engineering argument, I guess. It's like, it'll, it'll be easier if you do it now. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's always the concern with over-engineering, right? Yeah.
1: I'm really against over-engineering. Like, you know, one of my, in my current book that I'm actually writing, besides the second edition of bootstrapping microservices, is rapid full-stack development. And you know, one of the primary ways for developers to be more effective is to keep their code as simple as they can. Sure. But but that doesn't mean you can't be building, you know, the microservices platform. It doesn't mean you can't be building on top of that. And in fact, microservices feeds into that in a way. And, and this, this also goes to my personal pitch about microservices, why I, I sort of like that personally, is that I like working with small programs. <laughs> and um, I can say often that, you know, a small program is fully complete, to the spec, fully tested. And you know, not come back and touch that again for like months or years. That's one thing I like about microservices is that you can kind of divide a complex thing up into these small pieces. And each small piece is easier to complete, um, easier to test. And this goes back to my philosophy of coding, which is, you know, like keeping each step forward as small as possible so it's easy to test. And then you know putting that that in the bank. So in, in normal coding, you're kind of doing that with revision control, right? You do a bit of code, you test it, maybe you're doing automated testing, maybe you're not, doesn't really matter. You're banking working code with building a microservices application, I see it as banking working services where, where each one is small enough to complete fairly quickly. And, and it is just, I'll admit like it is just a, like a like a personality thing. like I, I think a lot about coding that we that we just don't want to talk about is due to personality like,
0: Oh, totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And and I just like microservices. I like, you know, having these small kind of things that, you know, that you can understand fully. I can easily bring in new developers. Like, so I've, I've run a bunch of startups over the years. Not a lot of capital, but, you know, we were able to get like interns to come and help. Extremely happy to put an intern on a microservice and have them complete that during their internship. And some of the code is better than others, depending on, you know, what, what, their, what their past experience is but it doesn't matter. And and it doesn't matter if I write terrible code as well. Like like I could write terrible code in a microservice and like it's small enough that in the future, like, you know, if, if we get proper funding and we, this really takes off, like I can easily throw that away and rewrite it without having to take down the whole thing or do some massive conversion. I, I feel really safe. That makes me feel kind of, really, really confident about the future. It, and it, I've heard it called, and, and I like to call it, um, designing for disposability. So designing your application in such a way that you can throw parts of it away. And, of course, you can do this with a monolith as well. It just becomes a lot harder with the team. And also over time, like in the monolith, obviously those boundaries start to erode. So you need a quite a competent but also a disciplined team in the long term to maintain that but with the microservice, it's just you know the code in in that little isolated ball of mud can be terrible <laughs> and, you, and you can easily pop that out and throw it away and and as long as you've you know and it doesn't even matter how complex the microservices application grows because you can zoom in on any small part of it and just see how simple it is and anyone can understand it like even someone who's a fairly new programmer can get the hang of a, a single microservice pretty quickly so i think you know like It's personal for me, like the reason why I use microservices or the reason why I continue to use microservices, um, even for small companies and startups, which is like something a lot of people groan about, right?
0: So I think from my perspective, the reason that I gravitate more towards a monolith is that, I mean, as you noted, like all those things where you're like, you've got a big complex system, big complex code base, and you're trying to break it down into isolated parts. You can do that without services, right? I mean, you can do that with modules. You can do that with, uh, in some cases, even functions the difference being how hard is it to change those boundaries and for better or for worse inside a single code base that's being deployed as one unit it's much easier to change those boundaries. Now on the one hand I totally appreciate the point that especially if you've got you know like beginning programmers on the team there's a concern that like hey they're gonna they're gonna make a big mess and if their big mess is confined to this service then we don't have to worry about it coming out and infecting the rest of the code base and like breaking stuff that's you know distant from what they were supposed to be working on but on the other hand there's another way besides services to deal with that which is just programming languages that actually have really strict module boundaries and so when they submit a pull request you know the, to to your code base you can look and see like okay are, you know are they actually modifying code in other modules if not then with certain programming languages i can say with 100% confidence that they are not they're not messing with the rest of the system because they can't. They just they just don't have access to it. Whereas there's programming languages where that's not the case, where there's like, you know, globals and stuff like that, like global mutable variables that they could be messing with. There's, you know, all sorts of side effects they could be doing that could be messing with, you know, other mutable global state. So I get that. Although worth noting that even if someone does have a small microservice or, or a big monolith, one potentially common point of failure is if they have shared storage, like a database. Or oh yeah.
1: So yeah,
0: if you've got a microservice and interns working <laughs> on it and they have access to a database, well, they can they can still do. Well, you know,
1: there. it's a fairly strong rule that you should only have one database per microservice, but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, put all those databases on a shared database server. So it can be right. quite still quite cheap and easy to manage in in that sense. Obviously, if you if you get bigger, you need to have like cluster of databases or database servers.
0: So that brings me to another fear that I have about microservices, which is that on the one hand, okay, so the cost of changing those boundaries is high, which means that people are unlikely to do it, you know, accidentally or gratuitously or when they shouldn't be doing it. But on the other hand, what happens when you get a business requirement that says, actually, now you need to change those boundaries because now we need to like, you know, in a very quick way, like get data from these two different places together in the same place. And like, you know, there can be, especially if you've got, like some business, two pieces of business logic that now need to coordinate in a very rapid fire way where you're not going to want to be serializing, you know, uh, messages back and forth across the network, but they're written in different languages, right? Yeah. So my fear becomes like, okay, what about when it's not just a matter of code cleanliness, it's a matter of being able to build and ship the product we need to ship. And now we've created this barrier for ourselves. That's really biting us.
1: You have to keep in mind as well, as usually there's only kind of one, you know, public facing API, to to the system or ma- or maybe just a couple, so you can do a lot of kind of aggregation in there, like almost like kind of the facade uh, design pattern. But I get it; it's like painful, you know. If you want to aggregate services or data from multiple microservices, you need to make some other microservice um, that that can do that.
0: Well, and and that introduces latency, right? So now potentially, if we have certain performance requirements, that might not even be an option.
1: Yeah. So I mean, there's no there's no easy answers to. These problems, uh, <laughs> and, and I think some of, them very... do, some, of them, some of them do go away when you use a monolith, but you also, you know, you get other potential problems as well. Maybe this is a good time to talk about sort of where actually my position is on, on yeah, please. monolith versus microservices, because I, like I've said to you earlier that um, I was sort of somewhere in the middle. What I think there is is, if you think that it's monolith versus microservices, that's just a really kind of naive way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah,
0: it's a false dichotomy I mean, for sure. There, yeah, you know, <laughs>
1: there, there is like a whole spectrum, right? With maybe monolith on, on one end and uh, microservices all the way to the other end. So possibly beyond that, functions as a service. Like I've I haven't been really been able to get into functions because you know, like I like to be able to have a good local development environment and testing setup. and have like uh, really-
0: like lambdas for everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've worked for companies that have, that have done that, and and the company I'm current, currently contracting uses functions, but they're, they're quite difficult to work with locally, like to, to build a local testing setup, which I think is really important. And I, and I think you can do that fairly easy, easily with microservices, you know, up to a certain size at least. And even, even beyond that size, you know, you, you can do cut-down versions. So there's this spectrum, monolith to microservices, you know, you, you can choose where you want to be on that spectrum, like like a position that, that works for you and your company and your customers. And like, I don't know your company, whether you're, um, I assume you, you've you basically got a monolith, but I imagine you've got a few other services kind of like hanging off that, right? Like it wouldn't just be a monolith, would it?
0: So I'm actually, uh, amusingly enough, I'm actually about to switch from a company that had, yeah, multiple services, but uh, like, a, like a handful, not not micro for sure kind of centered around one fairly large rails monolith which is mostly legacy it's it wasn't really like anyone designed it that way it was just we all sort of inherited that code base from when the founder of the company hired a guy on craigslist to build the first version of the product and by the time he like turned it into a proper startup and like raised money and stuff there were already like tens of thousands of users so everybody's kind of like flying the plane while building it but yes like where, where it ended up today is like one very large service and then some smaller you know Medium-sized services surrounding it, but interestingly, the company I'm going to be starting at uh, is actually all lambda-based. So I'm going to get some experience with that. I've never I've never worked anywhere that did that before, so I'll be very interested to see how that goes. But I mean, certainly it sounds cool, but I'm, I'm sure there's like you know pain points as as there are with anything. So and maybe the local testing is one of them. I don't know. If maybe they've solved that.
1: I still want to talk about the spectrum, right? Um, so the advice that I give companies who want to move from monolith to microservices I mean that can be a very difficult journey. The advice I give them is to you know, there's certain things you have to have in place. Let's forget about that for the moment. But to start moving along that spectrum from monolith versus microservices, you don't have to push all the way to microservices to get the benefit. And I like to call it, like I've had the benefit of working on you know several of my own startups where I've been able to do greenfield and do these sort of you know perfect microservices applications because I got to put the whole design the whole thing on paper and then code it all up. A lot of companies obviously can't do that. They're coming from from a monolith, or they're coming from that kind of mentality, that kind of thinking. They sort of the perfect world of microservices, I like—I like to call it the developer's utopia of microservices because it's—it's so rare, I think, in in the real world to actually kind of you know achieve anything that looks like that. Something is always done badly, broken. Sure, or, and this is the nature of development. It's—it's it's imperfect. You know, there's always things going wrong. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have jobs, right? If there wasn't continuous, <laughs> continue, continuous problems to solve, if it were easy, yeah. <laughs> but I say that if you start kind of moving along this this. Spectrum. If you start taking this journey towards microservices, um, you can get benefits just by starting that journey and, and putting in back place you know better automation, better testing, better automated deployments, and then moving along that towards you know what we might call perfect microservices. There's a diminishing return on investment, so you've got to choose a place I think to stop where the value is stopping. You know, coming through for you, for your company, and that's your place. That's your place on the spectrum that delivers the most value for you, solves the most problems for you. And so, what what I advocate now is essentially more of a a hybrid alternative. And this is what I do myself a lot now. Whereas, you know, four or five years back, I was trying to build everything like pure microservices. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and it's ultimately not not necessary. So, what what I tend to do now when I'm rolling out a new application is to have, you know, the Kubernetes cluster, have the deployment set up. You know, I usually start with a monorepo, even if it's got multiple services. And then I have a monolith, or, you know, maybe a couple of monoliths, it doesn't really matter. And I have where I need it, I have like a constellation of microservices around that, to do things like that, that I don't want to have kind of in my main process, or if I've got You know, also using Kubernetes, it makes it really easy to deploy Redis, to deploy uh, a MongoDB, to deploy um, a RabbitMQ, like all these different services that you can can rely on and you can just plug into your Kubernetes cluster really easily. And you you just set up then, you set up, you, you might have a monolith, a couple of services, but you're set up to basically chip things off the monolith that become, you know, too performance intensive or the security requirements change. And then also you can go the other way as well. If you get a business requirement that like completely messes with the architecture you had, um, you can start to absorb microservices back into that into that monolith if you need to and then split out new ones. So you can have this sort of, you know, very uh, amorphous setup really where, that can change over time where you can really get the benefits of both worlds you get the, all the benefits simplicity of using an ease of ease of coding for a monolith plus you get all the benefits that come with microservices because you can make use of them whenever you want you can kind of you can split new ones out whenever you need to and they're small like you know you can write a small microservice in a, in a day or two obviously it depends on the size so that's what i'm promoting now the the sort of what i'm calling the hybrid alternative
0: if i, if I can like summarize it in my own words it sounds like your pitch is is actually more to do with investing in automation and deploy like technology sooner rather than later. And so that basically, if you want to, you are set up to be able to do microservices, but it's not that you should feel compelled to do that just because you have the tooling in place. There's other benefits to having that tooling in place. Do I have that right?
1: Yep, yep. And and I've built MVPs that were just monoliths. You know, like sometimes there's yeah. just no, no need for microservices. But the one thing I always do, the one thing I always do is, is build an automated deployment deployment pipeline first. Like I want to know that committing and pushing code Gets that code in front of my customer with no issues, um, no problems. Like it, it just it just happens. Like it sort of fades into the background as if it's some kind of magic, and you don't even have right. to think about it anymore. And it's and it's fairly like GitHub Actions. Like you know, it's fairly fairly simple to get it get set up for this kind of thing these days. And the way I see it is that deployment pipeline. It's like feature number one of my product because it's the way that I get updates to my customer. And that without, without those updates to the customer. Frequent updates, I can't get the fast feedback that I need, uh, you know, as a startup, trying to trying to figure out what I'm doing and, and where I'm heading with this product. Um, I really need that speed. So
0: that I totally get behind. I think like, and this is something I, I started to say earlier that we went on a, some, like five tangents or something, but, but uh, so, something that I definitely appreciate about that approach is that I've worked at various different startups and various different big companies. And there's been a whole spectrum of like how easy it is for the average developer on the team. To get something all the way into production. And in some cases, it's a matter of like, well, you know, it's automated, so you got like a Jenkins or something like that. And it's like, I just I press some buttons and the deploy happens. In other cases, it's like, well, I need to like SSH in and and follow this script, you know, like a script that I as the human execute, like follow these steps, like do this, then do that, then do the other thing. And in some cases, there's just quite a lot of people on the team who just have just don't know how to do it. And so When they're on call they kind of need to hope that you know if something happens and they need to you know do deal with some emergency that it's something that can be fixed just by for example you know doing something to the database or like you know pressing the buttons in jenkins or whatever it seems like the more tooling you have the more people you're likely to have on the team who are able to do everything and who are able to at least like say whatever part of the system is broken, I know how to deploy a fix. I might not know how to fix it. I might need to call, you know, phone a friend to like uh, figure out what the, what the actual fix is, which is I think unavoidable when you have a big enough code base. But at least, you know, once once I've got the code working locally, I know how to get that all the way into production in a way that's not going to break things.
1: Yeah, well, you, you know what? I, I enjoy my downtime. I like to sleep at night and not, course, not be called yeah. on the phone. So I do all my development and managing teams and stuff like that, managing products, with this, with this in mind, that you know, I, I, I want this thing to look after itself of course, as much yeah. as possible. I want to handle all my errors correctly, and you know, I, I don't want this thing to break down um, and have to come back and deal with it. And you know, these things happen, right. Obviously, yeah, it's, we're, it's... we're not we can't be perfect, but I mean, there's there's a litany of things that we can do to kind of to write better code and to make sure that what we push into production um, doesn't break. It's not it's, it's not always perfect, but um, I mean, there's, there's so many well-known things we can do to achieve that.
0: Yeah, I think, like, first of all, I totally agree that, like, ideally nothing would happen in production. But of course, you know, like, it, it, despite the best intentions, there's always the, the most ridiculous example I can think of. And this was not like uh, a fire in the sense that, like, we didn't need to, like, you know, like have the on-call person fix it immediately. But the one time we had gone two years without getting any runtime exceptions in production from our Elm code. And we finally got one. And what it turned out to be was, and this is like such a classic example of the type of thing that you would never, I, I would have never like anticipated was, and this is on the front end, not, not on the back end, but it was like we had a drop down box in the browser. And we had some code that said, okay, well, we're creating this drop down. We're putting these five entries in it. And let's, look at our event object that we got and just see what we got out of like which of the drop down options were selected and so we enumerated these five options that we populated it with and then we said if we get something other than one of those five options then just crash because that can't happen because we know exactly which five options we put in there so th- there's no way the event object could possibly have something other than one of the five options we put in there it's a drop down and lo and behold eventually we got something that was not one of the five options we put in there and it crashed and that was our that was the end of our, our two-year streak of no uh of no runtime exceptions. And to this day, we don't actually know how that happened. Uh, It was like, it came in with like the empty string as like the event string. And the theory is that it was someone's like browser extension that like someone had maybe a malicious browser extension that was just going around spamming events at different, you know, things on, on the page or something like that. But... It's just, I think that's indicative of just like, there are so many things that can go wrong with a production system. Like you just, once you get enough traffic going through it, like it's almost like you're fuzzing it, you know, in production, there's, it's just, you know, there's gonna be some problem at some point. So the idea that, you know, only a certain subset of the team is able to fix things when those go wrong is scary to me. And and I would, I, in my ideal world, I would love to have, you know, confidence that everybody on the team can can at least get any fix once they've got it working locally out into production in a way that's not like like the rollouts are going to be done properly. It's not going to break anything or, or anything like I that. feel like
1: it's I feel like it's all too common just for people to kind of not know how their product works, at a, especially at big companies. And like when people come to me and, and ask me like, you know, how do I, what's the strategy for moving to microservices? You know, the first thing I say is like, you know, do you do you understand how your product works? Do you do you have a test plan for it? <laughs> you know, do you have automated tests? Do you have automated deployment? Like, if you're not doing these things well on like whatever your application architecture is now, then there's no way you're going to be able to achieve microservices. Like, there's certain bases you've got to have covered in order because because microservices is kind of scaling up. It's like it's taking what you do with a monolith and you know multiplying that by ten or twenty or hundred or however many services you're going you're going to run. You you can't do that without being able to manage the thing that you've got, and and you know like ha- have proper incident response, and and you know r- really learn from the problems that are that are happening in production, and, and finding ways to kind of you know stop these things from from happening, at least happening routinely. Like any any problem that you encounter in production, it should be unique. If it's not unique, it means you haven't dealt with it properly.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think you know it's <laughs> even with that restriction, there's still just you know so many things that could go wrong. I worked at one company, I worked there for two years, a little over two years, and my whole team, nobody on the team deployed anything, all we did was check in code, and then other people deployed it, and granted, we weren't on call, which, if we had been on call, I don't know what would have happened, but, uh, but, uh... But it it was, I mean, you talk about like people not knowing how the product worked. I mean, we literally did not know. Like we, you know, we would have casual conversations with people on other teams. So we would kind of get bits and pieces of of an idea of like how the system worked. But really it was just like, you know, we had our isolated slice of the, you know, of the thing and that was all we focused on. And we never deployed a a single thing ourselves. You know, I never even SSH'd in anywhere. I never even had SSH keys anywhere. (laughs) There was nothing. Just check it in and then other people take care of it.
1: I, I worked at a big company where the operations room was walled off from the rest of the, the rest of the floor that i was on by a big glass wow. wall
0: and we weren't allowed to we that's they're very on the nose <laughs> it's a physical yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but of course and then i've also you know been in a at, at a startup where it's you know uh we had no and you know I, I started this company so i can talk smack about it but i mean we, we didn't like it was literally just like our deploy process was like SCP followed by SSH. It was like copy up the local stuff from your current machine and then SSH it and you know do this do the steps to deploy it and and that was it. There was no and this is like you know more than a decade ago, so there was you know no Kubernetes or anything like that, no Docker. I, I guess maybe those were like just coming into existence, one or both of them. But um yeah, certainly uh not not all the tools we have today. But then again, I, I also appreciate the point that. You know, a lot of people say, like, you know, if you're, especially doing a startup, and like you said, you know, it's different if you if you already have the muscle memory. You just sit down, and you just whip up Kubernetes, Docker, no problem. But if you don't have that muscle memory, you can spend a lot of time just setting that stuff up and learning about it, and and not actually shipping a product, which can be deadly for a startup.
1: Yeah, and I like I, I get people kind of um, non-technical entrepreneurs kind of coming to me. A lot through social media, like asking me, like, like, how do I get started? How do I build the tech for the product that I want? I talk, I talk to people through video conferencing, that kind of stuff, and, and we, we talk it through. And I'm like, you know, you know, what have you done to prove this business before you even get to the tech? Like, you know, don't, don't don't worry about building tech. That's expensive, especially don't worry about building microservices. You know, you need pretty competent technical developers to to achieve that. But but what have you done? Like, have you have you have you tried? Simulating this business, as it were, oh yeah, manually. that's great. Yeah. And then have you used Squarespace or, or whatever you know, whatever the current thing in, in vogue for that is to to simply to put a web page in front of your manual manual service? And so, th- so there's many steps you can go through to like prove your business before you get anywhere near even tech, <laughs> like like tech tech. Tech is the expensive way to, to to build a business, unless you're a developer. Unless you're a developer a well, company. it's sure, a different yeah. story. Obviously,
0: it's like the old stereotype of like someone's like, "I'm going to start a blog," and then like three months later, they're like, "All right, I've finished building my custom blog engine for for my own blog." And it's like you know, you could you could have picked something off the shelf and just been you know churning out uh, posts by now, but yeah, now, how many blog there? <laughs> <you made? laughs> Quite a few. Well, not made, yeah. but used at least. Cool. Yeah. Well, so I, I think. I think definitely where where we have some pretty strong overlap in our approaches to things is that like I I think investing in like deployment automation and stuff like that is really underrated. Like I, I think that's like having seen like such a wide spectrum of how well and how not well this can go. It definitely seems like it's it's time well spent at some point. I don't know if it's. I think your your nuanced point about like. It depends on the team and how much you already know about this stuff is, is a really good one. But there definitely comes some point where it's, it's, I think, just kind of a mistake not to invest in this stuff. And like, uh, whether it's Docker and Kubernetes or something else, but, but something like the, the goal, I think, is the important part where it becomes easy and automated to like, take care of certain things. And ideally, the more people on the team who are capable of doing it, certainly people who are on call, the better.
1: Seeing as we're talking about startups, so I have I do have a bunch of tips I could go through for um, for startups using microservices. So obviously, you know uh, the conventional wisdom is to not use microservices, but you know, assu- assuming you've, you've smashed through that role and, and just want to use microservices anyway, or you know, like like what I've said is to use the hybrid. So you don't you don't have to use microservices, um, and the, and these still you know all apply. Obviously, the, there's a learning barrier to get through. You kind of you need to to learn the tech and assuming, let's assume that you, you've got that behind you because that is probably a huge huge expense and, and results in kind of a bunch of dead ends that are not, not very productive. But once you've got that tech and once you've got the recipes for building distributed applications down, I think that's probably the biggest hurdles out of the way. And then, you know, obviously the first thing you should do is kind of, you know, set up a template for your automated deployment, make sure that that works really well. You can start, even if you've got multiple services, you can start with a, a monorepo and a single CI pipeline. And then you just, you can actually, with GitHub Actions, you can actually have multiple CI pipelines in the one repo. I've written a blog post on this. If people want to look that up, my blog is um, codecapers.com.au. So that, that's a fairly recent one, but it shows you how to basically scope a CI pipeline in GitHub Actions to a particular directory in your repo. So you can, you can essentially do separate... CI and CD pipelines for subdirectories or subprojects of your of your monorepo, which for me that made the monorepo so much better for, for doing microservices. So like for years I'd I'd always just wanted to use like monorepos for small microservices applications. But ultimately the need to want to deploy services independently mean, meant you would have to kind of split your repos so you could have separate CD pipelines. Um, You don't have to do that now. So if if you're, you know, anywhere up to 10 or 20 services, like I think you're probably pushing the boundaries of a monorepo by then, but you can go a long way with a monorepo and it takes away a lot of the complexities of dealing with microservices. And it almost feels like you're developing a monolith because you can have them all kind of linked together um, using shared code libraries. I tend to use TypeScript for my development. And so I can run, um, you know, the static sort of compilation phase over all of them and make sure they all agree with each other in terms of the protocols they're using to communicate. So it takes away a lot of the risk in in that sense as well. I would assume that this, that strategy would also work even if you had like,
0: so personally, I'm a big mono repo fan also, but if you had multiple repos, I would assume that there's some way you could have TypeScript be aware as long as you've got them all checked out, of course, on the same machine.
1: It's actually quite painful. I've, I've written a few different blog posts okay. on how to get TypeScript in different projects to work. Um, you know, this is in this scenario where you don't want to publish something to NPM, where you want to have kind of like essentially private packages. So it, it, it's unnecessarily difficult with TypeScript. I, I've written like a package or two myself to kind of try and kind of bundle TypeScript applications together. Yeah, so that can be painful, but using using a monorepo, especially when you're using like npm workspaces, um, or pnpm workspaces or yarn workspaces something like that, it basically means you can have shared packages in your one monorepo that you can then share to to multiple other other projects in there. As if, as if they were just installed in node modules because it uses SIM linking to kind of link these things together. So it makes it much easier to manage like these sort of private packages that are that are used throughout like a like a bigger project. That makes sense. So the other thing I would say is, as well is to keep things cheap. I mean, with with a new startup, for me, it's all, all about doing things cheaply and getting a product um, online that doesn't cost much, you know, while you're trying to get customers or while you're trying to get funding for it. You can get by with a single Kubernetes cluster with one node. You don't need to have make multiple clusters. You don't need to have the expense of having virtual machines because at that at the early stage, you know, you don't need to have the redundancy um, or the performance or anything like that. So it can be much cheaper and much easier to manage that. Um, But also because you're building on Kubernetes, you know, you're building something that can move to different clouds. And I've actually made use of this in in a huge way because uh, one of my startups a couple of years ago, I'd built it on Azure, but we wanted to move to AWS only because AWS had a great startup deal. So they offered us a lot of credits to, to move to them because it, because it was Kubernetes, it was just this kind of like lift and shift operation, right? And just running running the scripts again to kind of do the deployments, and, and it was a little bit of work, I, you know, I have, for me and knowing how to build a Kubernetes cluster on Azure, which is very simple, I have to say. To building it on AWS, it can be a lot more difficult. I found I found easier and harder ways of doing it. So that was the hard thing. Moving the application across was was easy, and that's one of the benefits of using Kubernetes. Is that, and again, that's a personal thing for me. Like I personally. Uh, I don't like being. I feel very uncomfortable with being locked into a particular cloud vendor, even even though, again, the conventional wisdom is that you know you should use all the services, the custom services of the you know proprietary services of that cloud vendor to get the job done quicker. The problem is, like, I, I just feel very uncomfortable with that situation.
0: Well, it's because it's, it's lock in, right? I mean, that's the, that's the the typical trade off. It's like you get you get some nice benefits, and then as soon as you, for some reason, want to leave, you it's it's a lot harder to justify leaving.
1: Yeah, yeah, very difficult to move. Even with a small application, it can be can be very difficult to kind of move away from the services offered by a cloud vendor. I've, I've experienced uh-huh. that. So the other thing I like to say as well is use a stateless Kubernetes cluster. So um, don't for for product, for development it's okay, but for production don't host your databases in the cluster, and use cloud um, file storage. Don't store your files in the cluster. So I, I like to kind of think this is. I guess I think this is one of the things that makes it more acceptable for, for startups. Is that I know I can nuke a cluster, or I can have a cluster upgraded, or I can have an accident <laughs> and you know somehow break a cluster, and it doesn't matter. All the data is safe in a managed database somewhere. Um, all the file, all the customer files are stored in cloud storage somewhere separate, and it makes it easier to do upgrades as well. So you can kind of say like roll out experimental or new versions of your software to a new cluster, and then and then do this kind of like um, incremental kind of um, redirection of traffic to the new cluster before you take down the old one. So I know a lot of people aren't going to be working that way. A lot of people are actually going to be storing data in the clusters, but like that's something that, that made it much more effective for me just to know, just to have that confidence that something can happen to that cluster and it doesn't matter. Like everything that was in there is is like safe. And and of course, you know, all the services and code that, that are running in that cluster can just be reconstituted by deployment scripts really easily. So that's not something you can lose. Very cool. I already mentioned it, but um, having one database server like can save you a lot of money. Um, even though you probably want to have like one database per service in that and not not share those databases and uh, don't worry too much about automated testing either like i'm like i'm a huge fan of automated testing but in the early days of a product or a startup it's just like a level of investment that you don't need i think i think what what, one thing that came for me from learning like test-driven development you know quite a few years ago now uh, and learning how to do automated testing is that i've Basically, learned how to design my code and my applications for testing. So that's a knock-on effect. I think that you know anyone can who wants to become a better developer, you know, can can learn more by learning a bit of TDD. I also say the same thing about uh, functional programming as well. By the way, like I think, you know, like learning a bit of functional programming really opened my eyes. Get gave me a lot of techniques for designing code. And the last thing is, even though you might be using a making a distributed application using microservices. It can't be that this thing only works in the cloud. Like like I'm am a big believer in always having a great setup for local testing. That gets that gets more difficult with bigger applications, but using something like docker compose, you can actually kind of if if you need to do subsets of your application and and potentially, you know, mock out services in order to kind of constrain it to something smaller that you can test. But you might you might have several testing setups, but typically with a small project or what I'm working on for a startup, the whole thing will just boot up with with one call or one uh, invocation of Docker Compose up. And and then you've got an application with, you, you should invest in database fixtures as well. So having a good representative set of, of, of test data that you can, it would be good if you can switch that out so you can test uh, different different scenarios. Yeah, I mean, that's
0: a whole can of worms unto itself. It's <laughs> like database fixtures, and yeah. <laughs>
1: But just, just being able to kind of run your local testing setup, like, essentially with one command, and not having to read documentation on how to set that up or how to get started with it, and have it as possible just be, you know, able to run without any kind of um, developer involvement, and it's just there ready for them to test.
0: Very nice. That's awesome. Wow. This is this is a lot of very practical like knowledge. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your point about, like, regardless of whether or not you're the type of person who gravitates towards or away from microservices, that the the automation and the setup around like deployment and like getting a good local development environment and not relying on everything being in the cloud, all of that I think is really good advice. And you know, certainly something that we can agree on, even if we might you know personally like go in different directions when it comes to like you know whether to go microservices or not, or, or where on that spectrum to go, I, as you put it.
1: I think you know I think we agree on quite a lot. I mean, I've, I've been am I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say I've been listening to your podcast for probably almost a year. So like, nice. I, you know, I, I think I have an idea of where your opinions are at. And, and, and certainly, you know, yourself and your guests will have influenced my thinking in the last year. So. All right. <laughs> love it. You know, who knows where I would have been a year ago if you would, uh, if you would talk to me then.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, Hey, well, thanks for contributing to that conversation. And hopefully, you know, other people who listen to this will also get another more nuanced view of these things. So as I always love to, you know, i mean talk about people about wherever they're at you know however much i agree or disagree i mean i definitely learned something from having this conversation with you so i really appreciate it thanks so much for for taking the time to do it yeah thank you it's been an absolute pleasure awesome all right well the book is bootstrapping microservices from manning and we apparently even have the same editor as as i did on elm in action which is great she's a great
1: editor so That, that
0: surprised me very cool yeah
1: and i'm loving your book loving your book as well by the way i'm halfway halfway through your book on elm oh nice Thank you. I'm glad you like it. And, and I just want to say I'm, I'm writing a new book as well, which is called uh, Rapid Full Stack Development. So um, you can find links to that from my webpage, uh, codecapers.com.au. And it's it, it's all about how to be a more effective developer. And I think we could probably have another whole podcast if you wanted to talk about that. Uh,
0: no doubt. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like fun sometime in the future. Look forward to it. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for joining me. Thank you.